0: Have you ever watched a movie or maybe read a book and you get to that final chapter or the last scene and there's multiple characters and multiple plot lines that have been going throughout this story. And then in the last scene, often what happens is, whether it's the author of the novel or the director of the film, in that last scene, they kind of bring everything together, tie up all those loose ends, complete the, the arc of you know, each character's story And not only that happens often in the last scene, but if that novel is part of a series or maybe if that movie you're watching is part of a trilogy, uh, often what happens in the last scene is you also see a few hints at what's going to happen next, right? Things that kind of help set the stage for the next episode. Now, if you just jump into the end scene of a movie or if you flip right to the last chapter of a book and you read that. A lot of times it'll make no sense to you. It seems like there's all these random different things happening. But if you've been following the story, if you know what's going on, maybe if you've read the book before and you've seen the two movies that come after this movie, then you kind of see all the connections and you see how it it all sort of makes sense. In Genesis chapter 35, although it's not the end of Jacob's life, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we've been following the story of Jacob recently, chapter 35 isn't where he dies, But it is the conclusion to the part of the story where he is the main character. This is really the final scene for Jacob, although we'll see him again. In the future, he'll be a supporting character, not the focus of the story. After chapter 35, the spotlight's going to shine on his sons, especially Joseph. So what we find here in chapter 35 is really sort of a wrap-up that brings several different threads to a conclusion But it also gives us hints of what is going to come next. And as Jacob's journey comes to a close, we also find several key lessons that we need to understand as we continue our journey of faith. So we see in verses, first of all, verses 1 through 15. This is really the bulk of of our message this morning. In verses 1 through 15, Jacob's journey is complete. His journey comes to an end. And it's a journey that's not only physical, He's been journeying back from Haran, right? From the land of his mother's family, back to Canaan. It's not just a physical journey. For Jacob, it's also been a spiritual journey, one that's brought transformation for him. We see, first of all, in chapter 35, verse 1, that God speaks to him. God says to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you, when you fled from your brother Esau. If you were with us last week, we looked at chapter 34, one of the darkest and ugliest chapters, I think, in all of Scripture. And you have to wonder, how is God going to respond to Jacob following that moral tragedy? Well, thankfully, in an act of grace, God takes initiative and God speaks. And note his command to Jacob. First, he says, "Arise and go up to Bethel." He says, go up to Bethel, but this is actually a journey south from Shechem where Jacob was. But he'd going, he'd, to go to Bethel meant climbing about 1,000 feet in elevation. He says, arise and go up to Bethel. And he says, to dwell there. Although Jacob had lived in Haran for about 20 years and had purchased land near Shechem and sort of settled there, God's desire is that he return to Bethel. Bethel, if you remember, was the place where God had revealed himself to Jacob. When he had run from home because his brother Esau wanted to kill him, he had laid down, put his head on a stone pillow, and remember he saw in a dream a vision, a stairway to heaven, and he saw these angels ascending and descending, symbolizing that God was at work, that God's messengers, God's soldiers, that they were there, they were with him, Although he felt alone in the desert as he slept that night, he was not alone, and he saw God standing at the top of this stairway, and God had promised to be with him, to protect him, to bring him back, to bless him, to give him many descendants, and to give this land to him. God says, I want you to go back to Bethel, the place where your relationship with me started, and I want you to dwell there, not in Shechem. Not in Shechem. God desires for him to return. And when he gets there, what does God tell him to do? He tells him to worship. He instructs him to make an altar. Dwell there and make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau. Embedded in this command is really a reminder of the things that Jacob seems to have forgotten. He'd forgotten, perhaps, how God had appeared to him long ago. This is maybe 30 years previously, and God is reminding him, hey, remember what I promised to you there at Bethel. God's saying, listen, that promise has not expired. I still mean every word of what I said. If you remember last week, after two of Jacob's sons had slaughtered all the men of Shechem in retaliation for how they had defiled their sister, Jacob was afraid. He was afraid that the Canaanites in the region would hear about it and that they would come and wipe him out. But God's reminding Jacob. He says, listen, I'm still with you. I am the God of Bethel. My promise is good. But not only is God reminding Jacob by this promise of what God had promised, he's also reminding Jacob of what Jacob had promised. Jacob had made a vow at Bethel. If you remember, he had made a vow that if God would bring him back, that he would serve and worship God, and that God would be his God, and that he would offer a full tenth of everything he had to this God, the God of promise. But as of now, that vow is yet unfulfilled. Jacob had not returned all the way to Bethel. God's command to Jacob to return indicates that perhaps his decision to actually put his tent pegs down and settle there near Shechem That that's actually incomplete obedience, that he was supposed to go all the way back to Bethel in the first place, but had stopped prematurely. What this indicates to us is that this command to Jacob to get up, go to Bethel, make an altar, this is about more than just geography. This is a spiritual pilgrimage that God is calling him to, a call to renew his faith in God, a call to renew his devotion to him. And so Jacob hears the word of God, and he responds in verse 2 through 4, and he prepares his family for return. In verse 2, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, which is not just his sons and their wives, servants, children, but it's also now the people of Shechem that they had taken. Jacob says to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Their preparation to return to Bethel was not just a matter of packing. I was talking to Scott Huffman. He's going to go celebrate his anniversary. Today's his wedding anniversary, and they have to go pack tonight. They needed to do a lot more than pack to get ready for this journey. Their preparation was a matter of purification. They needed to be purified. Before they could come and worship God and build an altar and be there at Bethel, which means house of God, before they could draw near to him, There was a need for spiritual purification. He says, put away the foreign gods that are among you. And you have to ask, well, where did these foreign gods come from? Where did these idols, these figurines, these statues come from? Well, remember that Rachel had stolen her father's household gods when they had fled from Laban. Those needed to be put away. But perhaps there were also foreign gods that had been taken as spoil from Shechem. When the brothers came in and took everything from that city, I mean, think about it, gold and silver-plated statues, those have to be worth something, right? So they had all these gods, these idols in their midst. And he says that they took the rings from their ears as well. These aren't just, you know, jewelry like some of you women are wearing this morning. These would have likely been uh, charms or symbols of loyalty to these gods. If you worship the moon god, you wear a moon earring, right? Sort of like if you're a Chiefs fan, you wear, you know, the Chiefs hat. It's that sort of a thing. These earrings were symbolic of pagan deities, and so he says, give me your idols and the rings that are in your ears. And they all comply. They give Jacob everything they have. And Jacob buries it all beneath the terebinth tree. And this is not a ceremonial burying to give honor. This is like you know burying something that's garbage, something that's defiling, something that is shameful. They put it away from them. And they bury it beneath this terebinth tree. Trees in this land often marked a sacred spot, a place of significance. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, it says that Abraham, when he first came to the land, when God had called him out of Ur and he comes to that place that God showed him, that he built an altar to the Lord near the oak tree at Shechem. It's likely that this may even be the same tree years and years later. And so they bury all these things. Now, why is this purification necessary? Why is it such a big deal that they take their idols and their earrings and bury them beneath this tree? We have to understand this, that the burial of their idols and these personal items, it reflects Jacob's understanding of this truth. It's an important truth for us as well. That God's devotion to them, it deserved and demanded their full devotion to him in return. To worship this God... Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who made promises to Abraham and to Isaac, who had been faithful to their family, who had protected them and provided for them and blessed them, this God must be worshipped wholeheartedly. Later, Joshua would command the Israelites to do something very similar as later they would take possession of this land, the land of Canaan. In Joshua twenty four fourteen, Joshua says to the people, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fa- that your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What Joshua points out is that the worship of God, Yahweh, the true God, is incompatible with the worship of these false gods. And you have to pick. There's a line drawn in the sand, and you can't just mix and match. This is a matter of spiritual purification. If they were to go and worship God and draw near to him, they must put away these foreign gods. But there's not just spiritual purification. There's also a matter of personal purification, the washing and the changing of clothes. And this was necessary because of the lies and the bloodshed of chapter 34. That incident had left a stain on their integrity. And so the external washing and the changing of clothes symbolized for them the internal cleansing that comes through confession of sin and repentance. Psalm 24.3 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. If they would draw near to God, they not only needed to put away these idols, they also needed to be cleansed. They needed cleansing. This cleansing is what's pictured in the baptism of John in the New Testament. Remember John the Baptist came, and what was he doing? He was preparing the way of the Lord. The people were about to meet the Messiah, and when you get ready to meet God, that's who Jesus is, God in the flesh. You need to get ready. You need to be prepared and the way that we prepare is through repentance of sin and cleansing. And that's what John's baptism symbolized. In Mark 1 verse 2 it says this, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism Of what? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jacob and his family were unclean, and they needed more than a bath. They needed a clean heart. Their washing and changing of clothes symbolized repentance and confession, acknowledging that they were dirty and they were sinful and that they needed cleansing. By all these actions, Jacob and his family are expressing their renewed commitment to God and his covenant. Foreign gods forsaken. They are newly washed and purified, and they are now ready to return to Bethel, to the house of God. But for Jacob to obey this call, to leave Shechem and go to Bethel, well, that would mean he had to face his fears. The people of the land, to fold up his tents and travel south, meant that he would be vulnerable. They had to run the gauntlet, so to speak, before all their potential enemies. But God supernaturally protected them. God kept his promise to be with him and protect him. Look in verse 5. And as they journeyed, there's Jacob stepping out in obedience and faith. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob a terror from God. You know, Jacob had been afraid many times, hadn't he? Afraid of his brother Esau, who'd sworn to kill him. He'd been afraid of Laban and Laban's uh, retribution after he took his daughters and many of his flocks and fled. He'd been afraid of the people of the land, but now the roles are reversed, and it's the people who are afraid of Jacob, and more importantly, of Jacob's God. Abraham, you remember, had experienced a dreadful darkness when God's presence was manifested back in chapter 15. When God made that covenant with him, that dreadful darkness fell. When a sinful man is in the presence of a holy God and actually knows it, realizes it, you can't help but be afraid. And that's what happens here. Remember, Laban's ill intentions had been stopped by the fear of Isaac. Laban came, and he came with armed men, with all his kinsmen, to get Jacob And God spoke to him and warned him, do not touch Jacob. And that was the only thing that stopped Laban from harming him. And here again, the fear of God, the terror from the Lord falls upon the people so that they do not touch Jacob and his family as they pass by. And so Jacob, because of God's grace and protection, is able to follow through on his obedience. Look in verses 6 through 8. And Jacob came to lose, that is Bethel which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. And he called, so he called its name Elan Bakuth. So Jacob finally arrives at the place, at Bethel. Years ago, he had called it Bethel, the house of God, because God had made that promise and revealed himself to him there. And Jacob had sworn a vow there that if God would do this thing for him, he would be Jacob's God. And now Jacob fulfills that vow. And he obeys the command of God. He builds the altar, and he calls the place El Bethel, God of Bethel, God of the house of God. And he builds that altar there. Jacob's journey, now both in his physical and a spiritual sense, is complete. He's back in the land. He's renewed his commitment to God, obeyed God's command, and fulfilled his vow. But on the heels of this solemn and joyful occasion, we read a sad note. And this is one of those, one of those uh, transition points as we get ready to shift to the next scene, the next emphasis in the story. We see that Deborah dies and is buried there. Who is Deborah? Deborah's not been mentioned yet in Genesis. Well, Moses, the narrator here, tells us she was Rebecca's nurse. That means that she had likely helped to raise Jacob. The fact that Rebecca is not mentioned anywhere as Genesis moves forward tells us that Rebecca has probably already died, and Jacob likely never got to see her again. But through some turn of circumstance, Rebecca's nurse uh, has been with Jacob and his family, and this is really Jacob's last connection to his mother. And now she's gone. Deborah's death is one of several in this chapter that signals the passing of the baton from one generation to the next. But what happens following Jacob's obedience? A pattern we often see in Genesis. Following Jacob's step of faith and his obedience, we see God's blessing in verses 9 through 15. It says, God appeared to Jacob again, just as he had years before. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Remember, God had appeared to Jacob once years before. And now we see that experience bookended here by a second appearance at Bethel. God appears to him. And in light of both God's promise and Jacob's obedience, God blesses him. And he affirms these promises that he had made in times past. But this time he expands these promises even more than before. First, what he does is announce Jacob's name. He says, your name is Jacob, but no longer shall your name be Jacob. Israel shall be Jacob your name. This is a reminder to Jacob. He'd already changed his name. Remember that night as he crossed the river to enter into Canaan, he had wrestled with God and had his thigh, his, his hip dislocated, and God had changed his name to Israel. Well, he's not renaming him a second time. He's reminding him of what he had learned. He said, listen, your name is Jacob. You're a deceiver, You've been a trickster. You've always trusted in yourself and your strength and your abilities and your schemes. But I'm reminding you that if you're going to live here in this land, if you're going to receive my blessings, if you're going to be my follower and experience all these promises, then you need to live out your new identity. I've given you a new name, Israel. You've striven with man and God and prevailed. And now I'm going to be the one to fight your battles. And don't you forget it, to be here. And to live in my covenant means you embrace your new identity. He reminds him of what he had learned and who he must be as he now dwelled in the land. But then God announces not just Jacob's name. God announces his own name. I am God Almighty, he says in verse 11. This is a reminder to Jacob of his divine power. I will keep my promises. Don't be afraid of them. Know who I am. I am God Almighty. And also his divine authority. You need to do what I tell you to do. And he assures Jacob that he is worthy of trust and obedience by revealing his name, God Almighty, El Shaddai. And then he gives him a charge. He instructs him, that there in verse 11, to be fruitful and multiply. Now, if you've been with us for the last several months studying Genesis, this should ring a bell. You know we've heard this a few times, haven't we? We heard it first with Adam and Eve. We heard it later with Noah. Like with Adam at the beginning, like with Noah after the flood, this charge marks a new beginning for Jacob and for Jacob's descendants. This pattern that we've seen in Genesis, that they are God's people. They are now in God's place. They are submitted to God's rule. They're enjoying God's blessing. And he says, I'm doing something new now. This nation I'm making through you and your descendants, be fruitful and multiply. It's a new beginning for Jacob. And his family, and then he continues with this astounding promise that kings shall come from you. God had given this promise to Abraham two generations previously, but this is the first time God says this to jacob to jacob 's descendant, Saul would come, and then david israel 's greatest king, his son Solomon, who reigned in prosperity over the largest territory in israel 's history, but ultimately the Messiah Jesus, the King of Kings, would come through Jacob's descendants. What a gracious promise to a sinful man like Jacob, who stumbled time and time again, that God would grant him the privilege and the honor and the blessing of being in the line of not just kings, but the ultimate King, Jesus Christ. And he closes his Blessing to Jacob with this assurance that the land is for you and your offspring. What I said to Abraham, what I said to Isaac, what I've said to you, he's confirming it here once again. This is going to be theirs. And then God departs. He's gone. He goes up from that place. And Jacob is left with these gracious promises ringing in his ears. And he responds in worship and memorializes the place with the pillar and the offering We see here through this this section, verses 1 through 15, as Jacob's journey comes to a completion, his physical journey, his spiritual journey, we see that God is faithful not only to protect his followers, his children, but God is also faithful to purify his people, isn't he? God's always working in us. As we seek to obey and trust, as we stumble and as we're renewed and restored to God, He's always at work purifying his people as he seeks to bring his promises of blessing to the world through them. That's what God does. But it's not just Jacob's his journey that's complete here in this chapter. We also see that his family is complete. Verses 16 through 26. Having fulfilled his vow at Bethel, we see that Jacob continues to go south towards his father's house. He wants to see his dad to see Isaac. And on the way, a bittersweet experience changes the shape of the family. We see the birth of Benjamin and the death of Rachel in verses 16 through 20. It says, Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben Oni, But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, where, which is there to this day. Jacob gets another son. He has 11 already and a daughter, Dinah, but now we see he gets a 12th son through his favorite wife, his beloved wife, Rachel, but this son comes at a cost. Years earlier, if you look back in chapter 30, remember Rachel, who was barren, had cried out to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Remember that? She was desperate. Ironically now, she does die in the act of giving birth to her second son. She'd given birth to Joseph already, but now giving birth to Benjamin she will lose her life. The death of a mother in childbirth was sadly all too common in those days. And that's what Rachel experiences. But there's also a note of fulfillment here the fulfillment of her hopes. Remember when she had named Joseph, what she had said, May the Lord add to me another son. That was her hope and her prayer. And we see here that it's fulfilled. God had added to her another son, but she would sadly not live to see him grow into a man. She names him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. She knew she was dying. But Jacob calls him Benjamin, son of my right hand. The right hand, unless you're a lefty, like my son Elijah, your right hand is your favorite hand, right? And it's the stronger hand. It's the preferred hand, a fitting name for the son of Jacob's favorite wife, his preferred wife. And it's a more positive name that denotes strength instead of grief. And Jacob, if anybody knows the power of a name, Jacob knows the power of a name, right? He names the son, son of my right hand, son of my strength. Although most of the patriarchal family would be buried at the cave of Machpelah, we see that Rachel here is buried alone and a pillar is set up in memorial to her. Deborah is gone off the scene. And now Rachel is gone, the love of Jacob's life. But through her death, we see now that the sons of Jacob, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, are all now present and accounted for. But just like we saw last week, there's a growing tension among the family of Jacob. These sons are capable of some morally shocking actions. And that's what we sadly see happening next with the sin of Reuben in verse Twenty one, we see that Israel journeyed on, he's continuing south, and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Adair. And while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. It seems like a random, one off little statement about a horrible thing that happened. But there's something important for us to see here. The seduction of Bilhah is not simply a matter of lust. Remember that Bilhah was the maid of Rachel. And she'd been taken as sort of a surrogate mother, a wife for Jacob. Jacob had sons by four different women. There was Rachel, the favorite. And then there was Leah, the unloved wife, sister of Rachel. But then both Rachel and Leah had servants, Bilhah and Zilpah. And both of them had had children through Jacob as well. So it's kind of a complicated family tree Bilhah is the maid of Rachel. And so understand now that this is not simply a matter of lust. This is a power grab by Reuben. This shows the tension between Reuben and his father, the bitterness and resentment between Reuben and his father. To sleep with Bilhah was to ensure that Jacob never would again. He would never go into her again. Therefore, ensuring that the maid of Rachel would not take Rachel's place as the favorite wife. Reuben knew exactly what he was doing when he went in to Bilhah. Reuben wanted to make sure that his mom, that Leah, didn't have any competition. She had suffered so many years being second best, and he wanted to make sure she had no new rival after Rachel dies. Not only uh, did it accomplish that, it was also a claim to power in the household of Jacob. Reuben, as the oldest, is asserting himself as the heir. He's saying, all of my dad's stuff, including his concubine's, That's all mine. Later, David's son Absalom would do the same thing. If you read 2 Samuel, you see that there's a coup and that Absalom seeks to take over the throne from David. David flees, and a wicked counselor tells Absalom to go into his father's concubines. They set up a tent on the roof of the house to make sure everybody in Israel knows that Absalom's the new top dog. He's the new alpha male, making a statement that he intended to overthrow David and take the throne for himself. And that's exactly what's happening here with Reuben's treacherous actions. The text simply tells us that Israel heard of it. Israel heard of it. But like in chapter 34, he does nothing for now. But this immoral act would cost Reuben the birthright. Jacob never forgot. In Genesis 49, as Jacob prepares to die and as he speaks blessing over his sons, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But he says, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben's act, along with the violence of Simeon and Levi that we saw last, last week, this is why the blessing would pass on to the fourthborn, to Judah there's some serious issues in this family, serious issues. There's not just tension, though, between Reuben and Jacob. We also know that there's tension between the brothers, and even this list of all the sons kind of hints at that. So you look in verse 22. It says the sons of Jacob were 12, but then it lists these sons not in chronological order, Not the order they're born in, it lists them according to who their mothers are. The sons of Leah in verse 23, the sons of Rachel in verse 24, the sons of Bilhah in verse 25, and the sons of Zilpah in verse 26. There's status that's there. This is a who's who. What's the pecking order? Well, it depends on who your mother is. There's a lot of drama. This is a big soap opera, and there is a growing tension, not just between Jacob and his sons, but between the brothers themselves. By the time we get to the Joseph story, the unbelievable way that they treat their brother, it's going to make sense. But for now, we see that Jacob's journey is complete and his family is complete. And then finally, in verses 27 through 29, the former generation comes to an end. In verse 27, it says, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Jacob and Esau had once been mortal enemies, but now they're reunited once again, and they were able to come together and bury their father. At 180 years old, he died an old man full of days, not a perfect man, but blessed by God all his life. He had the privilege of seeing God's promises beginning to unfold. As his sons multiply and grow in number and wealth, chapter 36, which we won't take time in, tells us of Esau's expansion and his prosperity, their dwelling and possessing land. And now Isaac joins his father Abraham and the saints who went before him, Noah, and Enoch and others as he takes his rest. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, "'These all died in faith, "'not having received the things promised, "'but having seen them and greeted them from afar, "'and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles.'" on the earth. Abraham is gone. Isaac is now gone. But the promise continues. God is at work in each successive generation. His purposes and his promises remain, even as human people come and go. And his promises are unchanged, despite death, despite sin. Isaac has is laid to rest. Jacob has limped back into Canaan. And now the stage is set to see how God will further his covenant promises in the coming generations. This is sort of the wrap-up of Jacob's journey, of Jacob's life, and the table is now set for what's going to happen next. But I want to look briefly as we close this morning at four principles that ought to shape our own walk, that ought to shape our own journey, our own faith. I think there's some things we can learn here from the conclusion of Jacob's life. Number one, if you're taking notes, you can drop this down. Number one, our journey of faith requires purification. Our own journey requires purification. And that's a purification that comes through repentance. When we embrace Jesus Christ by faith, we all experience, first of all, an initial purification. There's an amazing text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that describes the kind of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. People who are ruled by their sin, whether it be murder or theft or sexual immorality. Paul says, that those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says an amazing thing. He says, such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you have been washed. You've been justified, sanctified by our Lord. When you come to Jesus and you acknowledge who you are, that you are a sinner and that you are unclean and that you deserve judgment and you're broken over your sin, you repent and confess and say, God, I need your grace, I need your mercy, God gives it. He cleanses us. He makes us new. He washes us. But we don't just need that initial purification. We we have that. If you are in Christ, you have that. But we also need an ongoing purification. We have a status of being clean. But sometimes we pick up the dirt and the grime of life, our own hearts, often make us unclean once again, not, not in such a way that puts us outside of God's grace, but in such a way that means we have some things we need to take care of. We see this in John chapter 13, sort of symbolized as Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He's, he begins to wash their feet, and Peter says in John 13, 8, you shall never wash my feet. He says, Jesus, you're the most important one here. You're not supposed to be acting like a servant. But Jesus answers him, if I do not wash you, You have no share with me. We have to be cleansed, right? Verse 9, Peter is picking up what he's laying down. Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. He's saying you don't need to get saved all over again. You don't need to come and receive the Holy Spirit all over again. You don't need to come and and experience the cleansing through Christ's blood that makes you a new person all over again. If that's happened, it's happened. And you have that status. That is written in stone. It's written in blood. Christ has purchased that for us with his blood. But we do need ongoing washing. We need ongoing change, ongoing cleansing because of our sins In particular, we're prone to pick up false gods along the journey, aren't we, as we go through life. You know, John Calvin writes in his Institutes that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Do you believe that? I think we all know that to be true, that our hearts are idol factories. It is so easy for us to love and fear and trust and depend on the wrong things. And that comes from within. We worship comfort. We worship money. We worship pleasure. We worship the approval of man. We crave things and experiences and recognition. But our God is a jealous God. And God's not interested in being one of our many loves. He's not interested in being one of our gods, one of multiple good luck charms. He doesn't want to be a backup plan for you. God demands to be supreme. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. What's the problem? We often try to sit on the fence, don't we? But God demands our full and total allegiance. Later, Moses would write in the law, the word of God, you shall have no other gods before me. In Deuteronomy 6.5, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Anything else is idolatry. If you are on that journey of faith, if you've trusted Christ, you're following him, said, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm taking up my cross. I want to be your disciple. Then you may need to take some inventory of your life this morning to consider, is there some ongoing purification that's needed in my heart? Examine yourself. Are there things in your life that need to be cast off? Like the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians and to the Colossians, that there are these things, these works of the flesh that we need to put off like a dirty garment that we take off and cast aside? Are there things you need to bury this morning so that you can fully follow God's call for your life? What is it that's keeping you from full and total obedience to Christ? Because whatever keeps you from full obedience is also keeping you from the fullest experience of God's blessings. You know, just like a yard that's filled with weeds can't really grow good grass. A heart that's filled with idolatrous loves chokes out obedience, and it hinders us from experiencing the full blessing that God delights to give to his children. James 4 verse 8 says this, draw near to God. It's kind of like go back to Bethel, right, to the house of God. Draw near to God, and here's the promise, and he will draw near to you. But James This wise pastor in Jerusalem tells us that that's going to require something. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's what repentance looks like, James says. Be broken over your sin. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Friends, if you're a double-minded person this morning, if you're trying to worship God and hold on to your pet sins. If you're trying to worship God and hold on to some of your personal idols. Then what God desires for you this morning is to repent and to receive the cleansing and renewal that comes through confession and forgiveness. First 1 John 1, 1.9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse us to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our journey of faith requires purification. That purification comes through repentance. But secondly, our journey of faith must be directed by the commands of God. If you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to walk that path of faith, it requires obedience. Obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, then you will what? Keep my commandments. You know, Jacob wanted to stop at Shechem, didn't he? But God commanded him to go all the way back to Bethel. Jacob had a directive to follow, and so do we. God has revealed his will for us, and it is here. You know, I talk to people who say, I'm just trying to find the will of God for my life. And usually what they mean is, should I marry this person or, or not? Or should I take this job or that job? Should I buy a house or should I rent? Often that's what they mean, but you know what? God has, re- has revealed his will for us. Not necessarily what job you're supposed to take, but he's told us how he wants us to live. He's told us what is right and what is wrong. He's told us what is wise and what is foolish. He has told us what brings blessing and joy and reward. He's told us what leads to destruction and heartache and consequences. It is here. Friends, we must be directed by the commands of God as we embark on our own journey of faith. You know, in our day and age, we can customize our house, can't we? You know, paint it this color, paint it that color, knock out a wall. In our day and age, we can customize our phone, you know, get a different colored case or install whatever apps you want on your phone. You can customize your hair color. You can dress different ways to express your own individuality. But there's sometimes an arrogant assumption that we can follow God our own way. But that's not how it works. We can't just do what we want and then sort of tip our hat to God in the process. That's not how it works. I'm going to ask you a serious question. How committed are you to obeying the commands of God? I mean, This sounds simple. This is like something we talk about with our kids. But I want to talk to grown men and women this morning. How committed are you to obeying the clearly revealed will of God? Obedience. Is a big thing. We talk about the grace of God, that our salvation depends fully on Christ, and I'll die on that hill. I will preach that till I'm blue in the face, until I'm dead. That it all depends on God and His grace. We don't earn His love or His acceptance. We don't earn forgiveness. We can't get into heaven on our own. That's true. But we can never emphasize that grace at the expense, the importance of obedience. James says, You say you have faith, you say you believe in that grace then you will show it by your works. Our obedience reveals the reality, the vitality of our faith. Obedience is important. Is your life shaped by God's word? Because partial obedience is not what God is after. Showing up here on Sunday and putting a few dollars in the box doesn't somehow compensate for living for yourself Monday through Saturday. And that kind of living, that kind of double-mindedness, that refusal to fully obey God, it won't bring blessing. It won't bring joy. It won't bring satisfaction. It will only bring frustration. Only when Jacob obeyed completely did he experience the full blessing of God. If we're going to be faithful, to walk this journey of faith, it not only requires purification, it also requires obedience that we... Submit to the commands of God. He directs our journey. But third, our journey of faith also must be sustained by the promises. So purification, that's repentance. Obedience to the command of God, but also trust. Trust. Our journey of faith must be sustained by the promises of God. Are there fears and uncertainties that maybe keep you from obedience? Yes, God, I know that you call me to do this, but I'm afraid of what will happen if I really do what you're calling me to do. If you're fully committed to taking up your cross and following Christ, you're going to face danger. You're going to take risk. You're going to experience loss. You're going to to perhaps experience ridicule. The only way we can persevere in all the things that God calls us to do is if we trust in the promises of God. You know the old song, trust and obey, right? Those things go hand in hand. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The only way we can persevere is if we trust in the promises of God. We must, like Paul tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, Paul says, are eternal. Only if you believe that will you have the courage and the conviction The strength needed to endure to the end and to keep obeying God, to keep walking by faith. And then, fourth and finally, our journey of faith, just like Jacob, depends ultimately on the grace of God. Just like Jacob, our own lives of faith depend ultimately on the grace of God. Here's the good news even when we stumble, even when we pick up a few idols along the way and have to repent and put those away, even when we fail to obey as we ought, even when we struggle to trust the promises of God, even when we are weak, God is faithful and he is full of grace. It was his power that ensured Jacob reached the end of his journey. And he is the one who also ensures that we will reach the end of ours. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Aren't you thankful for God's grace? It will not be because of our cleverness. It will not be because of our virtue. It will not be be because of our strength that we reach the finish line, that God says, well done, good and faithful servant. It will be because of Christ. His grace is what ultimately will carry us home. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God always finishes what God starts. If you belong to him, if you're a believer this morning, God's not done with you. And his grace is what will carry you to the end. Yes, we have a responsibility to repent and to obey and to trust, but ultimately it all depends. The foundation upon which our faith is built, it's God's grace. Paul says later on in Philippians in chapter two, verse 12, he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says, listen, yes, it depends on God, but you have a responsibility. Repent, trust, obey, you have work to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But notice what he says in verse 13, that we do that. But he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you know why some of you this morning have a desire to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Do you know why some of you this morning want to follow Jesus? Why some of you this morning hate your sin and want to be holy? Do you know why that is? Because God is at work within you to will. He gives you those desires. That's from his grace. And you know why some of you this morning are working, why you are obeying, why some of you are forsaking your sin, why some of you are sacrificially giving to the Lord of your finances, why some of you are sharing the gospel with your neighbors, why some of you are loving your wives and serving your children, why some of you are sacrificing for the good of You know why some of you are doing those things? Because God is at work within you. God is the source. It depends on his grace. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take this seriously, knowing that it is God who is at work within you, to will and to work for his good pleasure. It all depends, ultimately, on God's grace. He is the one upon, upon whom our, our faith rests. First Peter 5.10, Peter says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you're discouraged this morning because you say, man, I need purification. There's things that I'm not obeying that I need to, and I recognize I've not been trusting the promises of God. Good news. You can come to him in confidence, receive forgiveness and cleansing, and get a fresh start knowing that it ultimately depends on God. Because of Christ, we will make it to the end. So come and be cleansed anew today. Be washed and purified for the journey. Submit to the commands of God and trust in his promises, confident that his grace has brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. God, as we read the story of Jacob, we're encouraged to see that he's a frail and sinful man like us, but you are a gracious God who is faithful to always keep his covenant promises. We thank you for Jesus this morning. We thank you for the righteousness we can have through him. We thank you for the continual forgiveness and cleansing that you offer us through his blood. Lord, give us uh, a heart that is willing to repent and, and to cast off the sins that are in our lives, to put them away, to put them to death, to put them six feet underground. Give us a resolve this morning to be holy to pursue and to pursue purity and I ask God that you would give us a a zeal to obey give us a willingness to submit to you in all areas of life and not to be double-minded people Lord strengthen our faith to trust your promises because it's hard for us we're weak people but strengthen our faith God and encourage us this morning with the reality of your grace the grace that will bring us safely home grace that has been revealed through Jesus Christ we praise you God for your word and your promises Make these truths come home to our hearts that they might shape us and mold us to become who you want us to be. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.